Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, J.M. Prater. I am joined by hosts Patrick Green and Dan Ferlito. And today we are joined by three special guests. One is a contributor to our other podcast, Clara. She's a, a special contributor to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. Evie is a guest, has been a guest on uh, one of our last podcasts about uh, just kind of being an other in the Blade Runner universe and what that means in real life and what that means for her. Um, and Micah Green is Patrick's partner, and she is here to join us, and she's going to be a regular contributor to Shoulder of Orion. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Hello. Thank you. So today um, we're going to discuss uh, a rather controversial topic. Uh, I had posted a, a photo, uh, an image of Rachel and Deckard's love scene in our group, uh, Fields of Calantha, which is our Facebook group, our public Facebook group. 
Um, and that post received some very interesting replies. And we're not going to get into those for a while now, but I, I really felt, and Dan and Patrick really felt that it was important that we discuss this, but we wanted, we really feel like it's important that it's not just us discussing this. So I want to kind of, and we all just have seen this, this scene that you guys just heard uh, before I came on and introduced everyone. So it's kind of fresh in everyone's mind. And I, I right now, uh, we're just kind of, Patrick and Dan and I are going to give the floor to Evie and Micah and Clara and just, what do you guys think? How does it sit with you? What are your feelings about it? So I, I am a, a sort of recent um, fanatic fan of Blade Runner. And um, I only watched the 2019, I only watched 2019 just a couple months ago for the first time before I saw 2049. And I, I think I may have said, said this on the actual uh, post that you did, Jamie, in the group. But I was very, very confused by my feelings from this scene. Um, it honestly almost made me not, I mean, it, it did. It made me not like Deckard. It made me not know what to think about the film in general. I mean, I didn't, I didn't not like the film. I just came out of it very confused. I, I a hundred percent viewed it as a scene, at least with like where the consent was very unclear. Like it was just not clearly a love scene. It was a very awkward scene to me, and it, it left me feeling kind of icky and a little. I don't know. I just their love was not solidified for me upon the first viewing of that scene. What do you guys think? Um, it's definitely like an eighties version of a love scene written for a predominantly male audience where it's like designed to keep the, the viewer feeling like big and manly, you know, cause Deckard is the protagonist and we're living that, this story from his perspective and trying to keep that up. Um, definitely not defending it in any way. I can see how in that that time where that would be something that would be an acceptable thing to put in and no one at a writer's table would question it. Um, I mean, it wouldn't fly today at all. Um, right. Yeah. Um, for me, because I'm relatively new to Blade Runner as well. Um, I found the scene quite uncomfortable and, and I know it's a product of its time and that's the way it was filmed and, and you're right, that's the way the writers would have written it and it, that sort of thing wouldn't be questioned because that sort of thing was an everyday occurrence before. Um, but if you look at like film noir or uh, detective type uh, movies or stories, there's always that sort of manhandling uh, going on. The character is always a drunk or flawed in some sort of way. And I think that's part of Deckard's characteristic. He's hard to like. He's not a likable character, but that's that's just the way he is. But what he did, I, I feel, is not acceptable. No, not acceptable at all. Deckard is still, at this point in the storyline, I think he's still pretty ambiguous on his views and his feelings about Rachel. On one hand, he's very attracted to her. Uh, and his actions show that, but his the way he treats her shows that he doesn't respect her as a person and as a human. He sees her more of as a pleasure object, and he, right. he's and kind of testing that. 
Right. And, and her, um, just the plain old fact that she's a replicant, um, even if he's not intending to, it leads to, it leads him to treat her like an object. And I, I feel like for me, when I watch that scene and especially when he closes the door and slams his fist on it, he's clearly the aggressor. He's clearly showing her, no, I mean, you have no agency here. Like you're going to do what I say. And I'm literally going to tell you what to say and how to feel right now. And it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just it's so strange and, and uncomfortable. Um, go, a lot of those old movies, going back, if you haven't seen them in a long time, like going back and watching Westerns, you're like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> and, and, and even like, yeah, I, I'm remembering watching older films with my mom and just like like Gone with the Wind and stuff where they like smack the the wife and stuff like smacking sense into them and it's like it's like it's incredibly inappropriate and I and I didn't even think that way when I was a kid but now I'm just it's like almost it's it's like very nearly unwatchable in some of those old films it's it's it can be hard to watch and and like a lot of Clint Eastwood films (laughs) right (laughs) I think what's difficult is because you know, we are female, we tend to kind of put ourselves into the character. So therefore we feel from their point of view, we have a lot of empathy towards them. And and a lot of it is just trying to generate that sort of understanding why uh, Deckard, who's supposed to be a, a good guy or a, a struggling good guy, is is hurting someone he loves. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, how is the hierarchy of Blade Runner uh, the world uh, of Terrell and his manipulation towards Deckard and Rachel. How does that affect that relationship? Because if you if you take away the fact that she is a replicant and you kind of make it, uh, I don't know, like Romeo and Juliet or something, this sort of like manipulation with the kids, it's there's obviously going to be some sort of confusion and there's going to be a, a way of trying to act out their feelings, pro- probably not in the best way, for Deckard, but it's it's part of his uh, trying to come to terms with what's what's happening to him because he's obviously never really felt like this before. Um, and, you know, I, I, now I feel like I'm defending him because I totally feel like what he did to Rachel was, was so wrong. Like if I was in that position, I would just kick him in the nuts and run. <laughs> exactly. But, but for Rachel, like uh, she doesn't seem like the type to take shit from anyone either you know what I mean like when she was doing that Voight Kamp test with uh, Deckard she was right. just giving him really direct answers she knew the answer but she knew what she was going to say think about so, what has happened between the Voight Kamp test and this she has lost so much of her agency so much of her identity was that she was not a replicant that she was a person that she was part of this corporation and now she, she's lost it. Um, she's, you know, down among the common folk and she doesn't have any place to go. This is, and as sad as it is, in Deckard's apartment is the safest place for her. Right. And I feel like that is um, really interestingly illustrated in the moment just before this scene where she's sitting at the piano and she's like kind of taking, she, she looks so polished and perfect when we first see her in Tyrell's office. But then in this scene, she's sitting at the piano. She takes her hair out of the perfectly um, set 
uh, Victorian roles. Um, Mm -hmm. and she like, she, it's like she deconstructs herself to look more the way she kind of feels. And I, and I feel like after, after I first watched it, I was like feeling really uncomfortable with the scene, but then, um, I was talking with Patrick and we were thinking about how like both these characters are essentially broken. Like they are both very lost and they happen to be kind of lost together. And, um, and I think Rachel almost is frozen. Like she kind of, she's, she's lost who she is. She's lost her memories. There's no going back. You can't unknow that you're a replicant. And on top of that, she's facing, she doesn't know when her incept date was. She doesn't know if she's going to die any minute. She's just completely Mm -hmm. lost, I think. And it's like so beautifully shown when she just like like deconstructs um, the look that she had before, which is the iconic Rachel look. Yes. Um, yeah. Funny thing is, that's probably the the one time she looks the most human compared to every other time that I feel, and mm. it, just that vulnerability. Totally. And it's it's funny because her state of mind isn't that at all. She doesn't think she's human at all, so she's just kind of given up uh, being polished and perfect. But but to me, yeah, it it, it changed her uh, to be more human to me. I agree. Yeah. Definitely agree. And I think, I, I think, um, the way I, and I know I, you said you were defending him and Clara and I, I, I kind of feel, I felt myself doing that too and being confused at why I felt the need to do that. Um, and I, I read, uh, I'm sure many of you might've read the, the slate article where they talk about how it's basically, it's like, um, 2049 is trying to build emotion from a, a rape scene. It's not a love scene. They they are just like it's a rape scene. Blah, yeah. blah blah blah. And like a lot of me agrees with them. Like yeah, I kind of view it as a rape scene. Like but when I when I go back and I deconstruct it for myself, especially after watching Twenty Forty Nine and being so enthralled with that movie, I find myself trying to also defend Deckard and 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 um, I'm thinking, oh, he's lost too, and he doesn't know what he wants, and he doesn't know who he he is. And he's trying to make her see, although I think in a, a very weirdly aggressive way, that they are the same in that moment. He's definitely not doing a very good job. No. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. <laughs> what do you guys think? I, well, I have a question for you. Um, the music in the scene is very beautiful. <laughs> it's very, I, I wouldn't call it 80s. It's kind of classic film noir. Um <laughs> Um, and as watching it tonight it just it struck me you know I I think obviously I men maybe not all men definitely not all men we view the scene very differently than women do and I think one of the things that struck me is she's in his apartment number one that's red flag that's a scary place to be um, when you're in the moment and you're being kind of someone's not letting you go home and they're like no you're staying here she's in his world now you know, and right away I yeah. thought, well, that that's whole setup right there. She's completely vulnerable. She's not just vulnerable personally because of who she is or, or who she thought she was. She's in someone's apartment that she just met who doesn't seem like he, he likes her too much. Now all of a sudden he wants her, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and you have this beautiful music going on. And I'm just thinking like, this is very strange. Like it's beautiful, but it's not beautiful at all. 
And I was curious, it's, like, what the music, how you guys responded to the music. It's the only time the Vangelis music is, like, oddly out of place. Everywhere else in the, in the movie where it plays, it, it feels good and it feels right. And it's that comfort music because we've all seen the movie so many times. But that, that one scene, you're like, oh, I'm not feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> I was so when we watched it again um, in kind of preparing for this episode, I was thinking, and I was actually paying really close attention to the music. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Jamie, um, because I feel like when I watched it this last time, when Rachel first stands up after Deckard tries to kiss her, it's like obviously it's a clear no, like not like at least not interested right now, or like now is not the time. Whatever it is, she's she's like sending the message that now is it just not right now. Um, I don't believe that she is scared in that moment. And the music actually changes to a more, a darker tone when, when I believe, at least in my viewing, she does become scared, which is when he slams the door shut, then the music changes. And then she's like, obviously scared because she's literally being trapped in there. So I, I think that that was really interesting. And like, I agree. It, it definitely feels and I, I'm sure it's probably meant to feel um, like you're, you feel like you're out of place. Like, what am I supposed to be feeling while I'm watching this right now? Agreed. You know, just to just to butt in uh, on the music thing for a second. I, I when we were watching it again last night, I was specifically thinking, how different would that scene read if it had like threatening music underneath it? Mm -hmm. Like instead of this like sort of adult contemporary sex solo, <laughs> if it had like this, like this, like the shining music, it would be fucking horrifying. Yeah, like yeah. regardless of any other societal implications or any other questions of, of agency and power, like it would be a horror scene, partly, at least at least at least when he slams the door in her totally. face. Totally. You know, I don't mind talking about rape that. in this. But yeah, I, know, I was thinking I should do like like a recut for actually do literally it. was think was thinking about it this morning. I think just I'm gonna recut do that. the audio. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. just just to see what it looks like, you know. <laughs> the psycho music. Yeah, I was thinking Jaws. <laughs> I love it. All right, done. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. <laughs> uh, I'm interested though, uh, as we're discussing this, we're all kind of talking about how we perceive it, and again, I think that uh, we as men, perhaps even di even though it might be different within that context, perceive it differently, and maybe. Patrick, you can start about how you perceive it, and then Dan, you can talk about it, and then I'll talk about it. If it's, you yeah, know. Sure. Okay. I, I, mean, I, I can make mine kind of quick. I, I also, I just want to say that was a really um, great conversation to listen to, and I, I really um, appreciated not talking and kind of just hearing you guys, because you brought up a lot of really interesting things that I want to get back to. You should talk um, about them. But my, my basic, so my relationship with that scene has just changed so much, because as a, as a young person, I thought, I really thought it was a love scene. I thought it was like this very kind of beautiful moment where he's like, like the, 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 what has become in my mind a little rapey, actually, no, not a little overtly rapey about it has, what was used to be the sort of like his love is breaking through this barrier. And now I, I really, the first time that it really hit me in earnest was when we watched it when actually the first time I showed the movie to Micah, which was last year, because for some reason I had never shown it to her before right. and we were watching it and I was like, Oh my God, I feel like nauseous in this movie, even though it's a movie that's like in my head all the time, I had never actually been confronted with how I think that um, scene has, has changed for me. And, um, I find myself very frequently trying to justify it 
and trying to research the, you know, because there's all, all these stories and these anecdotes that we'll get into about why it ended up looking like that, about mm-hmm. some ridiculous things that led to it being shot that way and edited that way. But at the end of the day, there's you have to realize that after seven cuts of this movie, that is what they've ended up with <laughs> as the definitive version of that scene. And because of that, I think it's important to realize that, like, that is what they are trying to express. That wasn't a fluke. You know, like it, it is it is supposed to come across that way. Right. And so I think that that um, has uh, has really stuck with me a lot. And, and I and I kind of view it um, very differently now. And it and I, I have a hard time, especially when, as Micah was saying, when he closes the door and uh, and pushes her up against the, the wall and literally tells her what to say. And you also like it's something in my mind that bothers me a lot is the fact that she's such a victim in this moment anyway, because she has her whole world has fallen apart. You know, he's drunk. He's booty calling her from a bar, you know, like like she is like completely despondent. And she is, you know, as Micah said, taking all of her hair down, taking her clothes, you know, becoming the sort of shadow of who she was, this sort of, you know, more raw, more depleted self. Um, And she's very clearly not in a good place. Uh, And like instead of like allowing her to come to like this place naturally, he forces it and not only forces it, but the way that it's shot with the very, with obviously with the chiaroscuro forties film noir lighting, but also with the way that it's shot just in terms of a three quarter shot of Deckard, um, backing her into the window, literally flexing his neck muscles. Like he's like seething like an animal. It is, it is really scary. And and that's why like Evie, you're right with the Jaws music. Like it would play as a hundred percent threatening, as opposed to just threatening, but maybe coming from a place of like love, and maybe it's mm-hmm. justifiable. But to me, like now, like I I can't watch it that way, and it's forced me to really rethink a lot of things about Blade Runner. Um, and I I I have, and I have a fuller understanding of it now. I think because of that, but I also think that the scene, the way it is in the movie, is really important, and that it's a good thing that it's a difficult scene because it's mm-hmm. uh because it's it's I, th- I think it's deliberately complex yeah and i think that that deliberate complexity further muddies the uh the state that we find deckard in because we don't see him as this hero is his hero you know we, we we and 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 because of the way he reacts to the scene which would in a normal movie be the big you know romantic love scene where he's like you know um, like, you know, acting heroically, like he's actually being really frightening and strange and doing things that are anti-heroic in it. Um, and I think that that, to my mind, makes him a more complex and more intriguing character whose ultimate redemption, therefore, is more powerful and more earned and also a little bit dirtier because, you know, <laughs> he might not necessarily have deserved it quite so much. Uh, before uh, Dan answers, I, I think I was thinking of the idea of definition and part of what makes that scene and their dynamic uncomfortable is that it, there is no definition to it. And I'm curious, I don't, do any of us have definition? Like, is that, is it even defined what Deckard is doing? Do we know, do we feel like he's doing something? Like, I don't know really if I can answer. Um, and I'm curious if you ladies have, uh, what your gut instincts are, but I don't even really know what Deckard is doing. I don't even know if Deckard knows what Deckard is doing. <laughs> I don't think Harrison Ford knew what Deckard was doing at that moment. <laughs> Did Ridley Scott know what Deckard was doing? I don't think anybody knew. <laughs> Dan, Dan, what are your thoughts? I just blabbed on for a while. Um, man, I mean, I've really enjoyed listening to you guys and trying to absorb all of it. I think that 
on top of this being a complex and controversial topic, I believe in this movie, these are two of the most complex characters in the movie in one of the most complex scenes in the movie, um, which is why an outsider, I think, that like is watching the movie for the first time really doesn't even have a chance to grasp everything that is going on. Because once you learn about the movie and understand the plot more and understand the characters better, I mean, I wrote some of this out and it's literally Ridley Scott, uh, in future noir, his interview is called the 700 layer cake, because that's kind of how he viewed the movie in general. And I think mm. this is like the 700 layer cake scene to me. Um, mm. I wrote some of my thoughts down while you guys were talking. Um, I think if you look at the filming of the scene in real life with the actors, there's this very well-documented tension between Harrison Ford and Sean Young. Sean Young is much younger than him, way less experienced as an actor. And she was, she thought Harrison Ford hated her. So like, there's already a lot of real life built up tension there, um, which adds a whole other layer to that. Um, on that note, I would like to read a couple of comments from the production. Um, and if you're following along, this is in Paul Salmon's book, Future Noir on pages 194 and 195 for our listeners. Um, and I'd like to, uh, go over Sean Young's comments in an interview and I'll have, uh, I'll invite Micah to read that so we can have a, a woman reading it. And then I'll read Michael Dealey's, uh, comments, one of the producers. So, um, Sean Young during an interview with the Washington post, uh, on August 14th in 1982 said, a lot of people like the scene where I say, kiss me, kiss me to Harrison. Personally, it's not one of my favorites. How would you like to have someone grab you and throw you around a room? I had bruises all over me, and Harrison's beard was all grown out and it scratched my face. The whole scene just reminded me of a woman getting beaten up. And I didn't see how my character, Rachel, could go up to his room after that. I was a wreck. I had three or four weeks off after that scene. And here are Michael Dealey's comments. I've always thought of that so-called love scene as, quote, the rape in the corridor, end quote. It's true that Sean and Harrison didn't get along, but actually that roughness was the way Ridley intended it to be shot all along, even if Harrison and Sean had gotten on together. The anger Ford shows in that scene is also partially understandable in the story sense, concludes Terry Rawlings, another producer. Rachel had already run away from Deckard once before, and now she's gotten up and run away from him again on the piano bench after they've been close for a moment. That pisses Deckard off. Um, and again, that leads into some of the notes I was writing, but I wanted to include that because it gives us uh, some perspective from the filming. But so from Deckard's point of view, I think there's a lot of conflict there. He's having these feelings of love uh, that he probably hasn't had since his ex-wife. He's This is also a person he was contracted or some would argue forced into killing. Um, and so imagine the view he's had to have of Rachel from the beginning, from his initial contact with her, where he was testing her, thought she was a human, learned she was a replicant. Then she runs away and he's supposed to kill her. Now he's falling in love with her. Those are really complex emotions. Um, like the production mentions, he's angry because it's the second time she's run for him when really they've saved each other's lives. Rachel literally by shooting Leon and killing him when he was going to kill Re uh, Deckard. And Deckard returning the favor by not killing her, um, which in a way is saving her life. So I think there's some frustration there uh, in, in terms of their relationship. And then, of course, there's the layer of 
is she a person? You know, there are people like Rutger Hauer who views Rachel as a washing machine uh, in the sense that she's not a person and she's not human. Uh, and I guess from some points of view, they would argue whether she's alive at all, uh, which is not my point of view. I'm saying that point of view is out there. Rachel is very conflicted too. Um, and the, the beautiful line, this is one of my favorite quotes from the movie during this scene when she says, I can't rely on my blank. And so it's up to us to fill in the blank on what she was going to say. I argue she was going to say either memories or feelings or thoughts, but the conflict trying to be displayed, of course, we know is that she has just learned that all her memories, which arguably memory is what helps you develop emotion are someone else's memories. What she thought was her mother and, and other memories she has are not hers at all. And so now she's getting these new emotions and these feelings that are making her really confused. She's uh, not only is she young as a woman, but she's young as a replicant, meaning she's only been alive for maybe a year, maybe two years. So she really hasn't had very much time to develop these emotions. And so she's very confused, too. She could very well be falling in love with Deckard and totally be confused by that emotion. And it'd be really overwhelming. If we look back and think back on the first time we fell in love when we were younger, that's obviously a very overwhelming emotion. Imagine being a full fledged adult and never having had those feelings. Um, so I think she's confused. She's scared. She's in some ways, I think that my personal opinion is I think she's running away a lot more from her feelings and from emotion than she is running away from Deckard, um, which is why I feel the scene was written the way it was, where Deckard forces her to face her feelings. Now, that's another layer to it that I think there's a difference in what was written and how it was directed as opposed to how it plays out. So I think that the rapey qualities of the scene, which are definitely there, and I'm not arguing that they're not, um, I don't think the intent of the scene was to show um, a Deckard that is using his strength as a man to um, force Rachel to do something she didn't want to do. I think the scene is written with the intent of showing which and, and I think the part that really shows this is after he gets over his initial anger, you know, after he slams the door, throws her against the shades when he approaches her and she's she's terrified. He lifts up his hands as if to show her, look, you know, I'm not here to hurt you. Um, and again, there's, I mean, the layers keep going. He's a drunk. He's probably drunk in this scene. I mean, he falls asleep with a shot on his chest. Uh, we don't really see how much he's drank, but he's obviously a highly functioning alcoholic. That's the character of Deckard, um, which adds to it as well. We all know being drunk can make you more impulsive or make you come off in a way you're not necessarily trying to. Some people get more angry when they're drunk. That's certainly a common thing. A lot of domestic abuse is fueled by alcohol. Um, and, and there's that whole concept of him really being the protagonist of our story, but he's kind of the bad guy. Or if he's not the bad guy, he's certainly a very shitty guy. Like, uh, like you ladies mentioned, like he's a really hard character to like. Um, and I think he's an even more difficult character to understand. Um, and I think one, and, and then lastly, there's also the issue of, um, can someone who has personhood, um, but is not a human, do they have the same rights as humans? Do they, does consent work the same way? You know, like, uh, 
nobody would give the same rights to, let's say, a blow-up doll to make it a really simple, to simplify the concept. No one would care what someone does with something that is most definitely just an inanimate object. But once you start getting into science fiction and you start turning an object into, okay, now it's an android, now it's artificial intelligence, now it's a replicant, when does that person start to really become a human and therefore have all the same rights that you would afford any other human. Um, again, I mean, it's taken me this much talking just to describe some of the layers in the scene. I haven't really even given my opinion, but again, this is why I think that, um, it's impossible to give a superficial judgment on the scene for the positive or for the negative until you really break it down and, and, and have these discussions, which is why I think our Facebook group got so animated with it. Um, I think like Jamie and Patrick, I think they share my frustration in that we really wanted to hear a lot more from women about that scene. Um, but unfortunately, the science fiction realm and certainly this movie's realm, there are a lot more men out there. And so it, it was impossible to get that going. And it turned into a, mostly a discussion by men uh, about the scene, which is unfortunate. But luckily, we, uh, have the opportunity <laughs> to invite you ladies here. <laughs> Without right. the internet uh, being able to chip in, <laughs> so we have we have a chance to have a better, more guided discussion. So, um, yeah, I'll I'll stop for now. I but uh, and I'll give more of my like personal opinion. But certainly, I agree with Patrick. My views on it have changed over the years, from being a child and watching it to growing into an adult, having my own life and sexual experiences and love and all that. Um, definitely changes how you look at it. Of course, there's also what you guys mentioned about it being filmed in the eighties, which we know is a totally different time. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there for now. I mean, it, it's crazy to think about, and this, this is a film that for a lot of us, like made a big impact on us in our either youth or young adulthood. And it, it makes you think about the content that we build our earliest archetypes or prototypes of like what we build our concepts of love and sex and consent off of. Right. Um, that Deckard is kind of, not kind of, he's very much presented as like this manly man, the, you know, for someone who's not going to try and dig too deep on who he is as a character, uh, someone that, you know, people could want to be like, Oh, he's, he's this cool cop that, you know, has an awesome blaster and all this stuff. And yeah, that um, is an awesome blaster. It is so cool. It's so great. (laughs) Sweet trench coat. Yeah. 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 And it's like you, I mean, I'm thinking about this even as a kid, even maybe like as, as recent as like even five years ago, like when did, did the way he treats her in that scene finally become not okay? You know, and like, I think it's kind of nowish that we're we're in the midst of the Me Too moment movement, mm-hmm. and um, we're now realizing, hey, like that's not okay at all. Like that's not consent at all. And no. it's it's so interesting to me, like how I fight with myself about my feelings for the scene, because I did I left 2019 not liking Deckard, um, not necessarily not liking the movie. I didn't know what I thought because of this scene. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't know where I was left with it. And then when I saw 2049 and I saw sort of the, I mean, I don't want to say end of the journey for Deckard, but like when we saw the Deckard of 2049 and the way that he deals with Rachel's ghost and her impact on his life, um, I was I was very moved by where he ends up as a character 
So now I, it, it's like I retroactively realized <laughs> that um, the love there that, that he had for Rachel was in fact true, at least for him. And it's just, I don't know. I just very, I find myself fighting all the time with myself about this scene and about this character and this whole um, theme within the Blade Runner universe. This movie is, it's, I have always kind of used it as a yardstick for how much I have grown or how much society has changed. Um, and this, this scene is a good um, concentrated version of what the film is in its whole. You can use it as a yardstick to how do you feel about this? How has society changed its views on, on situations like this? Um, what's interesting, uh, hearing Dan talk about it, and Dan and I have had the discussion on, you know, privately and publicly before, and I've had versions of that conversation with other people, but I, I, I wonder if, um, I don't think it matters if it's what the intent of the scene is. I don't think it matters at all. I don't think it matters if that's, if the intent of the scene wasn't for it to be a little bit rapey or to give us, or to feel like there's no... Rachel hasn't given consent I, because if I think about it and I know it's a film, but um, I, I, I think the only way that I can talk about this is if any of us had a friend, uh, whether it's a male or female, but we'll just talk about a, a woman friend and they come to you and they said, yeah, I was at so-and-so's apartment last night. And he threw me against the window and it was really rough and it was really traumatic. We would, right. we, we, what would we say? We wouldn't try and contextualize it. Um, no, no. We wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, say, wouldn't "Oh, he must have been trying to love you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we would he, be like, "Oh my God, call the police and right then, now!" And then the friend would have been like, "Well, at one point he did hold his hand up, which is a signal of peace." You know, like <laughs> right, <laughs> right. We wouldn't do that. <laughs> but, here, but here we are jumping through hoops to justify. This. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. If, I don't. I don't right. feel like we're justifying. I think we're trying to understand it. Um, and I even mm -hmm. towards as the scene went on and she's at the window and he's kind of telling her to do all these things. I was quickly reminded of other movies that I've seen where there's an actual rape or sexual violation happening and the abuser is doing the same thing. Say this, do this, put your arms around me. You yes. know, you like this, you know, you like this. Right. Um, Deckard, Literally commanding her to do yeah, something. Decker was doing all of these things. And by the end of that scene, I don't know if I believed if Rachel um, was actually enjoying herself. I really don't know if I, I, I did. I wasn't convinced of it. Now, later on, there seemed to be a softening and a real connection made, but not based off that scene, based off of um, Deckard coming back after, you know, um, having his adventure with Roy on the roof and she's sleeping in his apartment and he, and he pulls over up the covers or whatever. And it's a really beautiful, touching scene that I really felt their love there. Um, mm -hmm. But the scene prior, I just was like, okay, so he's had his way with her and he convinced her to do it. Um, so I just don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's any way that we can, and I'm not saying anyone's doing this, but I know we're trying to understand it and we're breaking it down. But I don't know if there's any way that we can make peace with this to make ourselves feel better. No. And I think it's worth noting that there is footage that exists after the footage that we see in the final cut. Um, you know, you, you even see her um, partially naked at one point. Like there's there's more to that scene. But the fact that they cut it where they cut it, I think, is a very deliberate um, 
it's ending on a violent note where you don't see her do anything that is is not submissive. Like she's not me. Doesn't appear to have any say in what's happening. Instead, it just pans outside. Um, and you know, in, in earlier cuts of the film, of course, you see them, you know, riding in their in their little like their little Volkswagen commercial from the uh, the shining stock footage, you know. Um, and they're like happy and they're like, a, you know, a newly married couple kind of a thing. But you don't get that in the later cuts of the film. Like it, it there's no there's no bright, um, you know, uh, tying off of the loop. And so to me, it's like a, a completely it's a completely clearly violent um, thing. And where that violence comes from and what it signifies to me is what is is how you view their relationship, you know. That just brings to mind um, a quote from Romeo and Juliet, actually. Um, These violent delights have violent ends. Um, and it's just like like Ridley Scott or the way that they wrote this scene and the way that they made sure, like we're saying, they made sure that the final cut, it looks like such a violent beginning to their love. And then it does. It ends in violence. It ends in her passing away um, during childbirth. and. It's just, it's just so interesting, like going back to how we're all trying to, we're trying to not justify, but we're trying to understand so hard. Like, so, Mm -hmm. so almost like, so we can still like Deckard maybe. I don't know. It's just, it's just so interesting that they cut the movie the way they did. And, and, and that is different than in, um, do androids dream of electric sheep? Because in that, in, in, the novel, the the short novel, she Rachel like knows that she's a replicant, and she actually seduces the Blade Runners. So she's like fully in charge of what she's doing with her body in the book. But in here, it's like the opposite. She's submissive, and she's being told what to do, and she doesn't know that she's a replicant, and her world is completely shattered. And it's written by right. men, which is I think is an interesting as was and do androids dream of electric sheep was written by a man, but I do find it interesting that the Hollywood guys kind of took that story and flipped it to like, no, we don't, yeah. we don't want this. She can't be doing this. You know, she mm-hmm. can't, and she can't take control or power over the the situation. And they, and you, and beefed you want to up, they beefed up the macho-ness of Deckard in the book. Right. He's much more of a bureaucrat and someone right. who's, if I remember correctly, even kind of submissive in his own relationship and a totally different type of character. They made him, uh, much more manly and sort of typical, maybe not typical, but um, he strives to be more of that Hollywood uh, struggling hero, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, Cause he certainly just, has plenty of flaws. I just want to say that I feel like Deckard in the book is more like K in 2049 than Deckard is in Blade Runner. So wow, interesting. It, it, it's 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 the fl- the flip of the characters, like you said. You know, he's more of a bureaucrat and follows the rules and that sort of thing. And uh, and Deckard is pretty much uh, no, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, I think that's that's why there's that flip of um, character traits as well. So for mm-hmm. for Deckard to work with that, uh, Rachel couldn't be. Um, the one in control, the one seducing him, she had to be uh, subservient to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, going back to something um, that I, I believe Jamie had said about how this this was, you know, written and and, and created by men. Um, it's important to, to note that also, like, the origin of the scene was in a in a uh, like a masculine um, 
like a pants roll standoff between Hampton Fancher and Michael Dealey because they had been the producers had been pressuring Fancher to write a sex scene, right? And he was uncomfortable with it, and he thought that it didn't make sense there. Um, and so, kind of out of this uh, sort of stubborn streak, he got up and like grabbed Michael Dealey's thigh and said, "Like, kiss me earlier, like, tell me to kiss you," or like you know something. And and he, he did this whole like ridiculous, um, you know, hypermasculinized sort of making fun of thing, and then realized that the scene kind of worked in that way. And then they, and so then he wrote the scene with that dialogue. And then on top of that, when, as, as Dan said, when they were shooting it, there was this friction between Ford and young and they weren't getting along. And there's this kind of awkward dynamic. And Ridley Scott was like cranky and he was like, just like go with it. And then they ended up with this take that was very dark. That also was based on a script that by that point had been, had been born from, um, you know, this moment of like jest on, Almost. And I feel like uh, so. So like the, the way the scene ended up coming out might have been different from how it could have been if it had come out of different circumstances. But then again, you have to remember that this is seven cuts into the film. Like this is obviously what they wanted to represent with it. You know, mm-hmm. here's what Hampton. This is still from page 194 of Future Noir. This is what Hampton Fancher, the original uh, screenwriter, said about it. And this is after he he fought because he didn't want a love scene in the movie at all. He thought that having a love scene was way too typical for a Hollywood movie. Um, and this is reference what Patrick was just talking about, about the filming of it. Uh, the book says, emotions ran high during the filming of Deckard and Rachel's love scene, but not pleasant ones. What I hear, says Hampton Fancher, was that Harrison did not like Sean. But he used those feelings in his artistry for the love scene where Harrison corners Sean against the door and finally breaks her down into a kiss. And it worked. That surprised me. The way I wrote it, that was a very tender, erotic moment. I was shocked and attracted by what turned up on the screen instead. So it's interesting. This is obviously it's not dated, but I'm guessing this is a comment made more in the 80s. And it both shows a more positive spin than what we're talking about. Um, but also shows Hampton Fancher's sort of, uh, I mean, he says, how often can you say shocked and attracted in the same sentence about, about the same thing. So he, it, it even confused him, I think. Right. And, and going back to that, that theme passage when, when Sean Young actually talks about what it felt like to film the scene. I mean, uh, as an actor myself, I know what it feels like to be uncomfortable in a situation like that. Um, and I know what it feels like to be kind of pushed around by um, someone who you're doing a scene with. And when it gets to the point where it c- comes through your performance, you know something is definitely going on underneath it. Because um, mm-hmm. it does. And when you look at her face, she's she's about to cry. And it's like there's just no denying that at all. She looks totally horrified about what's happening she's afraid for her life it seems like um and i can just really feel that undercurrent in in the scene especially leading out to where he is telling her to say all the things that he tells her to say you know i have to ask you this pardon me but so many of my friends out there will absolutely kill me unless i do what was it like working with harrison ford especially in the love scenes can't help it i've got to ask it no big deal. No, no. big deal. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal, folks, really, no. <laughs> um, Harrison was very, just, uh, it wasn't, you know, my heart didn't beat, um, you know, with romantic love fever. 
Um, well, you're too busy perspiring all the time. I'm right? too busy working on my own character to really to really be concerned with with Harrison at that time, and Harrison is really too busy working on his character to really be concerned with me. And it's very strange that that would be the case in a love scene where you know two people are coming together there, but because of the nature of that love scene, because it's very violent. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's it's not exactly the most tender love scene you've ever seen. Well, he kind of gets into a macho routine with you there when you're alone together. And I was struck by that in the script. I wasn't quite sure maybe what was going on there. <laughs> you think you weren't I mean, clear as an what android, was going on. <laughs> think how I felt. <laughs> what was it like? You have feelings, but as an android, do you have to be instructed sort of in how to love? Well, that's the whole point. Uh, Basically, what I am is a person who doesn't have any love or sexual experience at all. That makes me no comment on right. Any of that. Okay. <laughs> that makes me that makes me basically uh, having no experience to draw from. So the reason, the intention of the scene was to that I was running out because I was just reacting like like uh, the does not compute. You know, I just don't understand this. I'm getting out of here for fear. And everybody everybody encounters fear in terms of sexuality and some part of their development as a human being. And um, I was getting out, and the, the intention of the scene, the love scene, was to, uh, for Harrison, for Deckard, to force me to confront mm -hmm. my own sexuality as, as a human being. I think people are going to want to watch for this scene. Very carefully. I, it might even arouse some controversy. I'm curious to see what sort of general reaction we get on that. Uh, well, for example, feminists out there, they might be wanting to jump on a scene like that, saying you play a very vulnerable female character capable of a lot of feelings, but yet the male has to instruct you, that sort of thing. Is that something that never has bothered you about doing that scene? The, scenes, the scene is not a scene I'd want to do over again. No? It's not no. a scene I'd want to do over again because, it, because, of, because of the violent... Uh, intention of of the character Deckard. I mean, it wasn't a pleasant scene. It wasn't the type of scene where you go, darling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that wouldn't have been appropriate in terms of that scene anyhow. So, you just uh, it's it's meant to arouse that type of feeling in you. It's it's not exactly a real love scene, it, really. You know, it's not a real love scene. Is Rachel human? How do we know this? And does it matter? I She's human enough to, to fall in love with. And I think that's really all that matters in this story. I yeah, agree I, with that 100%. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading uh, this chapter uh, when Shanahan talks about this in his Philosophy and Blade Runner book, where he sort of came through to the opinion that... Um, Rachel is not human, but she has personhood. And he uses, you know, previous philosophers and, and ancient stuff to kind of back that point up. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I even, I can't remember where I read this. It may have been online. At, at some point, someone even made a reference to uh, homo replicants. Like, maybe replicants will just become a subdivision of the human species. They're just a different... Uh, subset of us uh, which, Ooh, which like is that. interesting yeah mm -hmm. did you know that uh this is this is like the semi-unrelated thing but um in the in the 19th century there were so many cases of, of quote-unquote feral children that carl linnaeus who was the father of taxonomy actually suggested 
creating a, a homo ferens, I think it was. So it was almost the same thing. It was like a class of human non-humans. What? Taxonomically speaking, yeah. And, mm, and of course, it ended up going through, but I don't know why that, that just reminded me of that little factoid. Very much so matches that time period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was not a great time for that. Well, I asked that question because uh, in an interview that um, Rudger Howard gives, and he's perplexed. We were discussing this before, and he is perplexed by the love story, and he says that he seems intrigued and maybe disgusted or curious that Deckard falls in love with a washing machine. And uh, I'm, right. and that's going to kind of move us into a different section of this where we're going to kind of read some responses. Um, but I, I'm curious... It's just interesting, and I know we probably can't answer these questions ourselves, but with Rudger Howard playing a replicant who's finding, who wants to live, who wants life, who feels human, who knows he's human, then to look at someone else who's also a replicant and think, oh, she's a washing machine. I, I don't understand his disconnect there. Um, it's very curious to me, and it just seems to, like, did you even watch this movie? Sort of question, like, did you just play your scenes and you've never seen it? Like, do you know what this movie's about? Um, it's just a curious, it's a curious um, reply. But in context to this discussion that we're having and to the discussion that happened on Facebook, it kind of makes a little bit of sense in the in terms of what other men are saying about Rachel. Um, Rachel's personhood. Yeah, Rachel's personhood and uh, whether or not she's human or not. So if you guys think that this is an appropriate time, I think that we should maybe read one or two um, replies and uh, talk about them because I think I think that they need confronting and I think they need discussion, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to add as a side note about Rutger Hauer that it from all the interviews I've read and, and articles I've read, Rutger Hauer is about as complex as the character that he plays in Blade Runner. Uh, it's no surprise that his comments on it have been confusing like jamie just mentioned how could he give so much personhood to his character roy and not afford rachel's character the same uh, benefit at all and i think uh, most recently uh i haven't actually read it yet but i read the headline and learned that uh rucker hauer had some pretty disparaging and kind of disappointing remarks to say about 2049 and that you know he didn't like it and he thought it was too uh, simple or, or whatever and, and what didn't see it as a uh, didn't deem it as a as a successor to the original movie or in the same ballpark which I know everybody here disagrees with that statement <laughs> um, so it's it's interesting I think how even the actors who have been involved in this movie um, can have just as varied confusing and complex reactions to it um, just like Ridley Scott, I think, was after his first screening of the movie where he saw the first edited work and stepped back and said uh, something along. I'll paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but he said some long lines of, uh, wow, what a film. What the fuck does it all mean? You know, I think they mm -hmm. they made something more complex than they were even prepared to handle. And it kind of took on a life of its own, which is obvious by the existence of uh, an entire podcast about it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and just along the just to clarify the Rucker Howard comment, he does say that, but he also says that he finds it hilarious that anybody would care what he has to say about it anyway. So, so I think at least he's aware that he's not necessarily an authority on the quality of the film. <laughs> what that's, an interesting guy! <laughs> that's an odd statement itself, too. Like, oh, okay, yeah. I'll tell you what I think, but oh, if 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 you listen to me, like, that's funny. Yeah, that's weird. Right, right. Um, yeah, but it's an it's it's a worth you should read it. It's it's an interesting interview. Uh, the one uh, one comment that I found that I'm going to read in its entirety. It's not terribly long. Uh, I won't say the name, but I just think that the comment itself is worthy of discussion. It begins, it's not an oversimplification to say she is a replicant and therefore should not be looked, it should not be looked at as a rape scene. Deckard, replicants are like any other machine. They are either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. Tyrell says, Rachel is an experiment, nothing more, though I don't know where, I've never heard Tyrell say that. Um, line before, so I don't know what what he's talking about there. Um, and then, no, he does say that. That's a direct quote from 2019. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yes. I don't know why I missed that. In the final cut. Okay. So next is he says some seem to ignore the universe, quote unquote, in which these characters are in slave labor, pleasure models, calling replicants skin jobs. The universe in which the Blade Runner unfold in which Blade Runner unfolds places little value on replicants as equals, in humanity and endowed with natural rights. It shouldn't be considered disturbing when realizing this. It becomes disturbing when you view this movie if it's a real-life situation, and and maybe you're taking this movie too seriously. And that mm. comment had two loves. <laughs> I really don't know how to feel about any of that. I, um, uh, it makes me think too what I mean, Clara I, said I earlier. I know how to feel. It makes me think it's, about what Clara said earlier about how we all tend to, um, at least like we seem to be putting ourselves in, in Rachel's shoes. And I know for me, my like instant reaction is no, she's a person. She definitely has the right to give us um, consent or withdraw consent. Um, and I don't know why that is. And I think um, it speaks to you as a person, the person viewing Blade Runner. And it, it, it's interesting to think about like, how your gut reaction is like this person obviously um, is deeming Rachel to be nothing more than a machine. Um, at least that's what I'm getting that um, no, they don't have agency and no, it's not rape because she isn't a human. And for yeah. me, I'm tr- a little triggered by that. Cause I think that she, for me, she that is just raises a, a whole bunch of them. Um, that raises a whole bunch of red flags for me because I, it, it just in sci-fi in general, I I really sympathise with synthetic beings and robots and and clones because mm-hmm. when you make something that has the capability to have free will, to feel pain, like you know animals aren't human, but we know that they experience pain, and we wouldn't you know go and uh you know take their rights away just because they aren't human and and. Mm-hmm. Like someone has said not long ago, uh, not long ago, people of a different skin color were considered not human and uh, didn't deserve the sort of rights that we uh, everyone enjoys now. So where do do we draw the line? Uh, it, you just <laughs> it just seems so. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It just seems really wrong to me when someone says that. It, right. It's definitely coming from someone who hasn't ever been treated like not a human being before. Yeah, I mean, if they can't empathize with that that feeling of being treated like an object, it's it's just it's difficult. I'd like to add that um, that person's comments in particular um, 
kind of, to me, show that they're missing one of the biggest and main points of the film. And that is that nobody is arguing that replicants don't live horrible lives and that they're not built as slaves to go do dangerous, hazardous work, to be forced into sex slavery, essentially, but, you know, prostitution and pleasure models and all that. Nobody's arguing that that's not happening in this world. The question is the it's it, there's the moral question of if we had this capability, would it be morally correct to create people that we can use as slaves or use as objects and do whatever we want with? Most people would argue, no, that would not be morally correct. And that discussion, I think, is the most important one of the more important discussions you can have about the movie. And so if you use the fact that this is a harsh world where these slave replicants exist and don't have agency and are forced to do things um, to a certain extent against their will, or sometimes you know their will agrees with what they're being made to do, if you use that as an excuse for Deckard's behavior, I just I don't think it's related. I think the question of should this person or should this replicant be treated this way is still there. It doesn't. It's really irrelevant. Um, what Rachel was created for or how other people have treated replicants. That's not the question. We're talking about these two people here. And the, uh, the, one of the comments um, based said, Rachel's not human because she's manufactured. And uh, one of my rebuttals, I don't know if I wrote it down, but I certainly discussed it with Patrick and Dan in terms of in vitro fertilization. And that's been around for a long, long, long time. And, uh, you know, where, you know, obviously an egg and a sperm are joint, or, you know, there's conception outside of the womb in a Petri dish, and then they're, you know, unnaturally implanted into uh, a uterus, you know, hoping, you know, and there's been plenty of children born that way. Um, and that is, I would call that an arm of manufacturing. Um, so does that make them not human? And I know we're kind of bringing this discuss discussion from the, the world of Blade Runner into our world, but originally... Blade Runner was an, was an idea of our future. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's a what if. That's what science fiction always is. What if we got to this point? What if we got to this point where we moved past androids and we start making biological humans that we deem as not human? And it also reminds me of this one scene in 2019 where Bryant is discussing uh, these replicants that jumped, you know, that Deckard should be hunting for, and he introduces Pris. And he goes, yeah, your standard pleasure model just throws her away. You know, like, she's nothing. She's nothing. She's a standard pleasure model. There's nothing special about her. Um, not, she, I don't even think he called her her. She's just a pleasure model. Um, and uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Um, but I, as we've also been talking, um, it, or, there's this scene in 2049 where Joshi is in um, Kay's apartment. And she's drinking heavily you can tell that she drinks a lot and Kay is seated by her but he's not facing her he's kind of facing away from her to some degree and his his head's kind of down like making himself smaller and she's drinking and then she says what's going to happen after I finish that and you could tell that there was concern in Kay's, Kay's eyes but the scene it reflected to some degree what happened between Decker and Rachel but it was far cold it was cold it was heartless there was no romance there was nothing there um but it was a similar what if happening that 
what if Joshi commanded Kay to have sex with him, her, you know, like what would that, what would that have been? It was, it was a very interesting dynamic where the roles were reversed um, and Joshi had the power, but it didn't play the same way because we know Kay's stronger than her. We know Kay could throw her across the room and probably rip her limb from limb if he wanted to. You know, um, I, I just thought it was it was a worthy scene to to note as we discuss. Yeah, this this scene. I wonder how closely they looked at the scene that we're talking about from 2019 when they were blocking that and when they were um, considering like how you know how Joshi talks and how Kay responds and how he looks away and. Uh, the submissiveness in his eyes and his tone. Yeah, I think we need to asterisk that one to uh, make sure we ask that question. Uh, I won't even say if, I'll say when we interview uh, (laughs) Villeneuve or Fancher or one of the people uh, that were uh, involved in the writing. Earlier when we were talking about um, the morality and thinking about replicants as being human or being of the, the mind that replicants just aren't humans, um, it made me think of the quote by Neander Wallace when he says we lost our stomach for slaves. So his whole objective is to be making these humans that are their biosynthetic um, humanoids, I guess. And it seems like his view would be that, nope, it's and the way he treats um, other replicants when he kills the newborn and and everything right in front of love. He seems to be of the mind that, no, this is an object, and I created this object. I do what I want with it. And it's it's definitely an it. And it's, it's so like interesting to see the dichotomy of people who believe that replicants should be treated fairly and have the rights versus people who think replicants are just products. Right, and because in human history, we have so many examples of this, you know. There was a very large portion of this country that thought that, um, you know, African-Americans were three-fifths of a human, you know, for quite a long time. I mean, it's something that uh, I think mirrors a lot of things going on in society. And to riff off that, even what's happening today, and I know we kind of want to stay close to Blade Runner, but there are cases happening now where um, mothers are being ripped from their children because their children are are citizens and their mothers are not um, but it doesn't matter because you're not a citizen. It doesn't matter. You're, you, you have no rights. So it's a conversation we're having today. Like what gives you rights? It gives you rights if you're a citizen. And if you're not a citizen, you're nothing. You, and we can now hold you as long as we want to. Um, so right. I, I just think that that's why one of these, these conversations are important. I mean, of course, we're talking, you know, we, we base this whole discussion off this very disturbing, somewhat disturbing scene. Um, and to kind of pivot back, you know, there's a lot of, as I read through the, uh, a lot of the responses on the on the uh, Facebook group post, there's a lot of hemming, hemming and hawing by men who seem to try to like, well, you know, you know, well, we don't know what the, you know, and, you know, one person even said, well, you know, relationships are tricky sometimes, you don't really understand the, the signs, sometimes a no means yes. Um, and all of those things, and I, I never mean. Yeah, I, I, of course. And part again, part of the impetus for me to having this discussion was I was a little bit in horror about of what I was reading, um, and I, I had hoped, and I, I know Dan, you and I discussed this. I had hoped that the responses would have been more, not the exact response that I was looking for, but more of like, yeah, man, that was 
that's sort of messed up and kind of more of a consensus of that, but there wasn't. And that was really shocking to me. Right. It seemed pretty 50, 50 split online. Yeah. It's really interesting that we all, even as we're discussing this, keep, um, we keep talking about how, no, it's, it's, it's most definitely disturbing. It's most definitely non-consensual and it, it leaves, it seems like it leaves everyone, at least in this discussion group right now, um, feeling just uncomfortable, even if it's just uncomfortable in the slightest. And we keep trying to understand why and understand why we keep coming back to it. And I think it's, it speaks a lot to, um, how we, um, view just how we just move through through the world looking at this scene mm-hmm. and how we can I feel know, comfortable with ourselves yeah I know it's a, a hard scene for me to discuss because of my personal experience I've, I've been in complicated relationships where I haven't really understood my feelings and the person who I was in a relationship with wasn't you know a the best person that they're very much a gray area kind of like Deckard and and that's why I guess I could really relate to Rachel in that scene and that's why it makes me feel uncomfortable but I can definitely see it from their point of view as a person who could be confused you don't really have an example of what's right and what's wrong and you're really kind of searching for for what to do and, and you can see from the uh, physical language with Deckard you know when Rachel gets up and gets away from the piano uh, they were about to have an intimate moment and she breaks away and then he turns around and goes to grab her arm but misses and what would have happened if he was able to grab her and then just pull her back and kiss her then there wouldn't have been the slamming of the door or the fist or any of that sort of like angry uh, body language it, it really I feel like it really could have changed uh, the scene and and as an experience from that point of view, if I was Rachel and I was, he caught my arm and I did really want to get intimate, but I was ignoring my feelings, then that would feel like a romantic moment to me. But because mm-hmm. he missed her arm and she was able to get to the door, he had to do something to stop her. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying what he did was right, but this is what was going through his mind at the time. This is how he stopped people in the past. And, and you got to kind of think of, who he's used to dealing with. He's used to dealing with replicants as, as being second-class citizens and, and just treating people roughly in general. He doesn't even treat humans in the best way. So I, I don't know. It, it's really hard to say what what the original intention of the scene is or what the original intention of the characters are because it's it's all it's all kind of, you know, made up, but it can also be related to so much real-world stuff. One real-world thing that I think about um, especially in terms of even with these, uh, pretty much male dominated, like school shootings and, and mass shooter events where, um, all these perpetrators have been males and there's been a discussion, um, where without trying to justify someone's behavior, people still want to understand it because if you can understand someone's behavior, and you want to change it, you need to get to the root causes of that behavior. And so I've seen once you can get, once you move past the gun debate or gun issue, the next discussion is about what are we teaching our children, but more specifically, what are we teaching boys who will inevitably become men? And I think there is, as a man, I can speak for myself at least, um, 
in terms of society does give you some very strange mixed signals that everybody has to learn to navigate on their own. I'm very fortunate that I was raised by parents, but especially my father who never um, imposed on me any kind of overly masculine or macho idealism. It was always okay for me to, you know, share my feelings or cry or, you know, things like that. Um, my dad was always a strong supporter of that, um, which helped me grow up generally speaking to be balanced and really learn myself what, how I felt I should treat women and, and what the right thing to do was in, in situations like that. But I think that that is not always a clear cut message for people. And I think something I notice uh, with men in particular is that very often men are taught that the only feeling it's okay to express in public is anger. Um, And that, uh, and this is not just men, right? I think women buy into some of this as well when it comes to the interaction between men and women. And obviously I'm in this particular case, I'm describing, you know, heterosexual man to woman interactions. Although of course, um, th- I'm sure there's more to it and, and more to the, uh, uh, you know, we can get into other situations as well, but I'll, I'll speak from my experience. Um, and so that you have this concept of, well, women need to be pursued and you have to be persistent and women like aggressiveness, which there are some truths there, right? Like, you know, someone in a consensual situation could certainly talk about, um, liking a man, like taking charge or throwing them around in bed a little bit, right? There's all, there's this whole spectrum of things where, um, you can see how someone can start to become confused about where the line is on what's okay and what's not okay. Once you add, of course, the layer of, you know, your own personal mental stability, uh, experiences that you've gone through, have, you know, whatever traumas you may have had and, um, you know, the things society pushes and then what your parents or your environment you grew up in can, can teach you. Um, it makes for all the more complicated situation. And and I think you can break down consent in the sense that consent is either there or it's not. But I think in terms of how we grow up as people and specifically as men, um, it can be, really difficult to sort that out. And so I I do empathize for people who have trouble sorting that out because it's not simple. Just on that point briefly, um, you know, as I sent you guys a video earlier, uh, our our eldest um, who's four is, uh, is getting into Blade Runner now, which is, which is pretty awesome. And we've been (laughs) watching it. And, uh, and, and the, the scene that I uh, don't want him to see is this particular scene. I actually don't care if he sees when, um, when Roy, you know, uh, breaks uh, Tyrell's eyes or any of that, like the violence doesn't bother me that much. Um, and I think it's okay for him because he understands this, this, that there's like a cinematographic violent thing that um, is fantasy. And it's something that we can talk about as being non-real, but, I, but to me, there's something very real about the danger implicit in that scene with Rachel and Decker that to me is very hard to explain to a kid. Um, and I think maybe part of that's coming out of my personal experience of not seeing the deeper darkness in that scene until relatively recently, the last couple of years. And I think that, um, I, that that's what, so I was having a conversation with Micah earlier when we were watching this with, with him. I was like, I don't really want him to see that moment because I don't want him to think to, to, to take away from that something that I think is a little bit dangerous. Right. 
I agree. I'm really glad you feel that way. Yeah. Well, I think sexual trauma is different than if it's a sex scene and they're four and they're watching it. They're not even knowing. They're not even going to know what they're watching. Um, and I'll push back a little bit on the idea of, and I know that relationships are complicated. Sexual dynamics within relationships, straight, gay, or whatever, um, are complicated, and they can be. But I, I would push back on the notion that. I think a lot of people, uh, and we're kind of veering far off, but that's okay for a minute. Um, a lot of people tend to reenact in their sexual dynamics experiences that they've, they've had as children. And many times women who, who like being thrown around in bed are typically um, victims of sexual trauma as a child. And it's incorporated into their sexual dynamic. So I don't know how healthy that is. Um, and as someone who has experienced that twice in their life myself, um, there is, there, there is, uh, there's this weird, like, yes, this is unhealthy, but you're drawn to it at the same time. So, uh, I, I, I it's, it's a slip, it's a slippery slope. I, 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 just because something you want something to happen doesn't mean it should happen. Doesn't mean it's good for you. Um, so yeah, I, I just think it's a very complex thing. Very complex. It's, uh... I'm still, my, my head is reeling over the comments. I I didn't have a chance to read any of the comments and I'm, I'm very surprised. Um, but on the other hand, I can't say that I'm 100% surprised, uh, because it's very easy to take away someone's humanity when it's convenient for you. Yeah. The comments earlier too, on, um, immigration and parents being split away from, uh, their children reminded me of even the language we use often can be really strong and for some people without noticing it. Um, and it implies certain things and it gives away some of your motivations. For example, when I hear I'll, I'll keep it to like on the news, I'm not going to call anybody out in particular, like a, you know, a person that I know or anything like that. But, um, when people use the term illegals, or illegal alien, which is even more specific, yet even completely more completely dehumanizing. Yeah, completely dehumanizing. You are now um, taking, you're illegal, right? And, and you're and, not from here. An alien. I mean, of course, we all we all have. Uh, even for those of us who don't work on the Perfect Organism podcast, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. the word alien in itself, you know, describes something that is not even of this world. To a certain extent, obviously in grammar, that's not the definition of the word used in this sense. But um, we're also summarizing a person based on one particular action they have taken in their lives. In this case, crossing a border illegally or being in a country under, you know, not a legal status. Um, Mm -hmm. And you're using that word to summarize that person all in one, which is something I try and avoid to do. That's like a goal of mine, um, is, and, and, you know, with friends and with coworkers, I can talk shit with the best of them and I have no problem, you know, cursing or using certain words with people when we're joking around. But in real life situations, I try my best to avoid, uh, using one word. Like you could, you could call it name calling, but um, using one word uh, or single word descriptors to describe people because people are so much more complex to that. And there's so much history and memory and environment and all of that. Um, and it's, you know, the same way you could call someone a transgender or a gay or the way 
um, replicants are referred to as uh, a pleasure model or a combat model. You know, you're just summarizing this complex person into just one thing. And I, and I just think it's interesting. And and I think that that's what reminded me of it is these comments where, um, you know, people are trying to put Rachel in this very tiny, very defining box. And I think just like really, when you look at it, it's inappropriate to do that with humans. I think it's just as inappropriate to do it with replicants, even in a fictional setting. Right. And, and dehumanizing by, by putting that person in or putting that, I don't know, the, the person into that box, like calling them an illegal or an alien. I mean, now on the news, I've been hearing that a deterrent for um, people trying to cross the border illegally is to separate them from their children, to just detain the children literally thousands of miles away from their parents, just so that um, the parents will give up their case and stop fighting and just go back to whatever country they're they're actually risking their lives to get away from. So, I mean, how dehumanizing is that? You're not allowed to to even try to live. So we're going to do everything we can, even take away your children who are in in no way equipped to be on their own. I just think it's, it's completely devastating. And it's that, that's how, that's, that's how it affects me too. I mean, when, when people say like, oh, she's not a human, she doesn't have, agency it's just it just hits me so hard that way and I'm not sure why or what that says about me as a person but it definitely like definitely has that instant shock reaction when I hear something like that and when I hear something like that being said about Rachel not being a human which is interesting because if we go back to uh, the inspiration that Philip K. Dick had to write do androids dream of electric sheep? It, one of the inspirations was him reading, or I think it was watching a documentary or reading about an SS officer um, hearing screams of a child uh, during uh, in, a, in a war camp or in a concentration camp and doing nothing and not responding. To me, that is not the sign of a human. A human being does not treat another human being like that. It was even it was even worse than that, Jamie. The the comment the context is correct, but his comment was basically uh, about his concern was that he couldn't sleep because of the screaming. Yes. So within the context of the of course horrible concept of what a concentration camp is, um, this person has removed humanity so much from another person that even in hearing their suffering. The only thing they're concerned about is themselves. And in this case, the fact that it was giving him a hard time sleeping. Yeah, yeah. And I, so uh, to go back to the comments that we've read and I, and this large discussion that kind of surrounds what is it to be human? Was Rachel a human? What were her rights during that scene with, with Deckard? Um, I would argue that if you're going to treat people, if you're going to treat Rachel as a, wash, as a, as a, as a washing machine, you're not human. If you're going to um, shoot Zora in the back while she's running, trying for her life, you're not necessarily human. Something's missing from you. There's something. There's something uh, not humane about you. That is what is not human. Um, which kind of, for me, kind of answers that question: What is human? What is it? Hum- being human is being being able to show empathy. And I don't think uh, I think Deckard's struggle is for, with empathy. But that, you know, by the same token, I mean, would you deny humanhood to a sociopath? 
Well, you know, I, I'm not saying it's didn't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't think it's black and white. It's not. I'm not pivoting to just because that action isn't human that you're not human. I'm saying that's not a human action. Right, and and one of the other concepts in the movie that's brought up, not just in this scene, but in the final scene with with Roy, is that it's your actions that define you as a human, not how you were born. Um, and that's shown, of course, at the end of the movie where Roy, under all sorts of pretenses where it would have been totally acceptable, he doesn't even have to kill Deckard. He just has to let him die. It doesn't even, it's a passive action he could have, he could have um, partaken in. And he makes a deliberate choice as one of his very last actions while he's alive to save Deckard's life. And I think the point that is brought there that pivots back to Rachel and Deckard in this scene is that um, we can choose to be human or be more human with, you know, the choices we make in everyday life define us as human beings. And it's important to remember that you have that choice. To me, that's one of the largest um, points of, of, of uh, the original Blade Runner. And 2049. I think that's kind of the central lesson at the heart of all this yeah. stuff is that the choices we make define who we are, you know? And I, I can't, I can't not believe that Roy doing something probably in 2019, one of the most human actions in the entire film in his last moment, save a life. I have to think that that greatly affected how Deckard saw replicants going forward. Oh, most definitely. And I think yeah. that in the final cut, you can read it in Harrison Ford's face. You can see the empathy and the compassion. Um, and for as much as the voiceovers are generally despised, and most would argue from an artistic point of view, make for a worse movie, there are tidbits of um, information and depth in them at times that give us a great insight into the movie. And... Uh, I'll have to look it up to remember the line, but I do remember Harrison Ford's voiceover in that scene where, um, you know, essentially paraphrasing, he makes a description similar to what we just talked about, where he says um, in that moment, you know, he was human in that moment. Um, he did the most human thing you can do. Um, yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Which even flips um, what Fraser asks of Kay in 2049 on his head, where she's saying, you have to kill Deckard. But he decides, no, the human thing to do is to save Deckard and to re reunite him with his daughter. Um, even Fraser had kind of walked, she's changed into something different, you know, into, well, we're out, we're kind of out for blood now. They're becoming human, you know, the darker part of being human. Um, just an interesting flip of the script to yeah. some degree. But going back to this scene, um, really quickly, going back to the scene and, and more human than human, um, I wonder what it is that, because I, I don't know, it, it's like Deckard is this kind of angry beast in the beginning of the scene. And I, how does Rachel express her humanity in then like allowing herself to, I guess, be overcome with her emotions and her feelings and to, is she, is she actually like submitting because she's afraid for her life or do you, or do you guys think that she might be 
opened up to the fact that maybe she does have feelings for Deckard. Sometimes I think that there could be some disassociating going on in that moment for her, letting it happen because it's the safest thing. She She's afraid of what could happen if she fights more. Right. Um, that, like, this is the safest thing for me to do in this moment as much as it sucks. Um, I'm probably imposing too much of my own stuff in, in this scene mm-hmm. when I think about things like that, but it's real. Like you can, you can be sexually coerced into doing something that you might not necessarily have had the initial inclinations to do on your own. What do you think, Clara? Um, <laughs> I, oh, it's, it's, it's really, it's a really hard subject to discuss because like I'm, I'm talking from my experience now, uh, having gone through it myself and, and being a, a mother to a daughter and, and having friends who've, who've been in, in really awful sorts of relationships where they've had this sort of, sort of sexual manipulation done to them. And I can, I can tell you that, that there's, there's definitely degrees of consent and it really depends on the relationship um if there is malice uh in 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 intent it, it could change the whole tone of everything and i i think it, it really depends on what both people want out of it and, and how they want to be treated and i i i think rachel doesn't know um because you know at first when she thinks she's human you know she wants to be treated with respect and as a human and then as soon as she loses that sort of identity uh she accepts the way that Deckard treats her as a replicant and I I think it's pretty awful um but at the same time Deckard's fallen in love with her and he he doesn't really understand how he could fall in love with a replicant it's 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 basically you know they're the enemy I should kill them and uh, just coming to terms with with his feelings as well. I think it's I don't know. It's just it's it's, a, it's still a very confusing sort of scene. The the, the two very confusing sort of characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in the end, maybe one of the best things we can pull out of that scene in order to get something positive out of it may not be inherent to the scene. May, meaning. Maybe we can't excuse uh, Deckard's behavior, no matter how hard we may want to, because we love this movie, and to a certain extent, we love Deckard as a character, or we love to hate him, certainly. But <laughs> you know, there's mm-hmm. some we're 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 we have an emotional attachment to the character that we've grown up in all our lives. But um, maybe one of the best things we can take from it is a bad example to not follow. This is how you should not treat a woman or another person. Um, this is an example of not having empathy. Um, but I think regardless of what conclusions you can draw, the discussion that we're having is the best and most important thing that I think anyone could pull out of that scene. Well, for me, I think it's, it's really, uh, it, it, at least by the end of the movie and, and by 2049, you can feel how Deckard has changed. And, and, and I think that is a really good example to take out of that scene because nothing is set in stone people can change 
you know, it's, it's never too late to to remedy a situation, whether it's, you know, five years down the track, 10 years down the track, you know, a couple of hours, there's always a chance to change your ways. And 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 I love Deckard in, in 2049. I, I, I didn't like him in the original Blade Runner. And I think that's the magic of the franchise now to be able to have that uh, change change the view of that retros- retroactively just like with the recording of listening to the Voigt-Kampf test it, it it turns it from an interrogation to this r- romantic remembrance and that scene you can see Deckard change from like you know this really uh violent guy to a, a really loving and uh he wants to be a father you know he he, he did sacrifice everything to to let his child live and you can tell how much he loved Rachel and you know through that scene it's not clear but by the end of it all the whole story uh it's clear that he does and 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 that's the same in life as well you know people can start off abusive and if they want to change they have the opportunity to that's what Mm. I I take from the scene now anyway well said yes I I I think that's very powerful I I think about all the time that he's had to spend alone now thinking about the things that he's done when he was a younger man in 2049, all that time that he's had to sit with his choices playing that very dangerous game of what if, uh, what if I did this? What if I treated this person like this? What if I didn't do this? And I think that's made him a very different, very, not very wise, but a much wiser person than he was before. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking to see the transformation that he goes through, having lost Rachel and having lost his his child. I don't think we could appreciate how good of a performance Harrison gives in 2049 if his character was not so different in 2019. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. This- this impact that he's had on his life was from a very short-lived period. Him and Rachel yeah. had what a year or two together, maybe. I mean, there's a date, so we could figure it out uh, retroactively. <laughs> but I don't have it in front of mm-hmm. me right now. Um, but and who knows what he got a chance to tell Rachel, and what he never got a chance to tell her in that time. And mm-hmm. um, who knows what actions or thoughts uh or words he ended up having to live with for the rest of his life that he may uh regret and i think you know there's a lesson there too that we we never know how long the people that we care about are going to be in our lives and that's certainly something that i think sticks with uh deckard's character i I mean i think at, at the end of the day we're left with an immensely complex scene that is in many ways befitting an immensely complex movie, as we mentioned earlier. It's a 700-layer cake, and this is the top. And um, and I think this is just the beginning of the conversation, and I can't wait to see what else we get in terms of feedback from people in Fields of Clantha and elsewhere. Um, you know, this this is just, just like these movies are ever-evolving in our minds and in our hearts. I think we should the conversation should evolve as well. And we should see these scenes differently, and we should take a moment to reevaluate them in the context of our current moment and our current um, point in our journey as a species and as a viewership and as a fandom. And, uh, and I just personally want to really thank all of you for joining us. This has been a really ama- amazing um, 
free-ranging conversation that I think covered a lot more ground than I even thought it would going into it. And I, I, I already am really looking forward to listening back to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so on behalf of all of us, thank you all for joining. This has been an amazing conversation. Yes, thank you. Thank it's been you. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming thank on, you. Clara. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you guys. We'll talk again soon. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.